Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd. I'm just the uneducated, not very money savvy sap who answers all of the innocent and naive questions, which are then answered by the two financial whiz kids who helped me to do this podcast. And they are now going to introduce themselves, starting with whoever opens their mouth first. Uh, that'd be me, because I really do struggle to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, Tom Morris, I am a director and charter financial planner over at Ovation Finance, who I, I guess, we can we call them sponsors at the moment? I, I don't really know. Actually, here's they a point. They pay for it. They pay, well, for, they it. pay <laughs> for it. That, that's the point. But if anyone would like to sponsor us, feel feel free to get in touch. We're not, we're not, not shy on... Uh, on Who would on, be our ideal sponsor? Hmm, that's a good question. Now, you see, it? being a financial well-being podcast, we can't say I don't know Mercedes Benz or Audi or something because that would that was that's materialistic. Maybe uh, Fender guitars. I'd be quite interested in that. <laughs> Somerset County Cricket Club I oh, think, would be my uh, would controversial. Be my or or Bristol City Football Club. Oh, I know those are two all right. Well, if we were chucking that in. Heart. Gloucester Rugby, no! from there, fancy, you know, I happily, happily have some sponsorship from there. Why would I ask that question? <laughs> <laughs> You're teasing me. Sporting rivalry is a marvellous thing. So, who I is know, in, all, in all seriousness, we are, we are, uh, this was set up by, by the fund that I work for, Ovation. So, if you're interested, go check us out. We do some yeah. lovely things there and we're really and nice they're very people. good. And yes, yes, I am biased, but yes, they are my financial advisors and very good they are too. But now we've had another voice interjecting here briefly, uh, complaining about being teased. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> so my name is Chris Budd. I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book, founded Initiative of Financial Wellbeing, and I uh, also write novels. So if you're interested in a bit of holiday reading, then latest novel, The Vanishing Point. Let's plug that one this time. Actually, I'm really chuffed. I think it's fair to say of my three novels, this has easily gone down the best of the three, actually. So I'm really, really pleased with some of the feedback I've been getting. So, yeah. That's oh, that's great. I look forward to reading that. I've, I've, of course, read your first two. Haven't got round to reading that one yet, Chris. On my list. <laughs> I think you're actually quoted on the cover of the first one, David. I think I am, yes. Because you're the biggest Sorry. celebrity I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've moved on a bit since those days, Chris. You've met Tomo since then. <laughs> right, enough of this inconsequential chat. What's the uh, what's the meat on the bones of today's podcast, Chris? So today we're, we've got an interview with Dr Moira Summers. Many financial advisors listening to this will know Dr Summers. She wrote a really amazing book called Advice That Sticks how to give financial advice that people will follow. She's a professor from Winnipeg in Canada, uh, expert in neuroscience and financial and neuropsychology, mental health behavior. I mean, she's really bring the size of a planet type person. So yeah, we're going to have a chat with her. Great. Look forward to that. Now, for some time, and I believe it was raised, if not on the last podcast, uh, on one not long before that, we've been looking for a new feature something with which we can engage our listeners, something that will get them tweeting in and emailing in and phoning us up and sending us carrier pigeons. Have you come up with one yet, Chris? Not as such. <laughs> My current favourite phrase, whenever I'm asked if I've done something, not as such. We're working on something very exciting. No, we're not. We're working on something really, really exciting. Uh, but before we get into that, there's actually something I wanted to do because I came across a word 
And you will remember, I'm sure, that some many podcasts ago, several years ago it would have been, we uh, went through lots of different words that had a relationship to financial well-being. I do indeed remember that. And and completely unprompted, uh, I have to say, <laughs> that uh, the, the one that I do genuinely do remember was huga which was a Danish word, which I think started it all off in podcast. I cannot remember when it was. Should I do some good podcasting uh, producing right now? I think you should. Episode 23. There you go, look. We also had Ikigai, and I always hope I pronounce that correctly, which means a reason for being, um, or perhaps purpose. Yes, and, 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 yeah, and there was a Dutch word, and if we're coming on to dodgy pronunciations, gezelligied, I think it is, which is similar to our togetherness yeah i love the fact that we're pretending <laughs> we remember all of these words and it's very impressive up. chaps i'm really no, glad that you looked these up beforehand at all no well that's the reason i did i hugger i genuinely remembered uh the other ones yes uh, some a degree of research has gone off here <laughs> my, my favorite was carl sadaganet which is a finnish word that roughly translates as the feeling when you're going to get drunk home alone in your underwear with no intention of going out oh, that's, well, that's just whole... been lockdown hasn't it one word. It's the ultimate lockdown word. There's a whole world encompassed in one single word there. And also another one, uh, a Norwegian word, kusselig, uh, which I seem to recall, Chris, you described as, as, as a positive attitude. For example, if it's really cold, that's great because it means you can put on your lovely warm scarf. And I can really that. relate to that as well. As the seasons begin to turn, uh, we're recording this mid-September. Uh, and actually, I, I do enjoy the summer. I love walking around in my uh, shorts and t-shirts and things but actually equally when the weather starts to get cold i love to uh, close those curtains get a fire going and snuggle down on the sofa here's another dodgy pronunciation and i'll really try it this is an inuit word ictros ictros no hang on here we go <laughs> uh as i struggle to pronounce ictros pock do you know what I, this is this is this is going to be proper interest in podcasting as i google how to pronounce this word and repeat it to you all wait for it so just gonna yeah and i think we're gonna get letters of complaint from our inuit audience however you do it. <laughs> here we go i found one let me before you do it let me have a go it's your puck there you go there you, you did it david play it it's your puck there you did go. you play did you play the google one yeah, that's what it. That's how it said. And as, as I, I was thought that was David it. saying it, so that's actually the Google one. But good Lord, David, that was fantastic. So, so look, uh, <laughs> but anyway, there is a meaning to this word. I'm not just randomly saying. These oh yeah, words. Like that. Uh, it's the feeling of anticipation you get when you're expecting someone, and you keep going outside to check to see if they've arrived. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, when you somebody happened to me quite recently, actually, I can't think who it was, so obviously it hasn't been enough. It meant a lot at the time. I hope they don't listen to this podcast. I, I like I like the idea. Oh, Bill, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just Ixer a pop. Fantastic. So, so there's a point to all of this because I found a new one which I just really liked it, and it's really positive. You'll be familiar with Schadenfreude, I'm sure. German word for when you delight in somebody else's misery or fortune. It's awful, you know, when you see somebody <laughs> do a little trick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you okay? And then they are, you can have a little giggle. I'm sorry I'm a bad human being, aren't I? <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, okay. But anyway, there is a word which means the opposite to this, which is mudita, 
It's a Sanskrit word, and it means the opposite from Schadenfreude. It means when you feel great joy by seeing someone else's success. Isn't that oh, great? I love that oh, one. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I think quite often we are schooled in in somehow being resentful or jealous of other people who've done well, and and, and I never am. Well, I, probably, I say never. Probably sometimes I am, but I, you know, I know one or two people in in my field of work who have become incredibly successful. And I don't sit there moaning about the fact that they've, you know, that, that they've got the success that they have because I think they've worked really hard for it and they're mates and I'm pleased for them. Sure, if I'm a big believer in this. I didn't know it was a, a word. But if you can capture some joy from other people's success, you're going to have more success around you and more joy around you. And I love nothing more than hearing a friend tell me they've got a, I don't know, a promotion at work that they've been working hard for or or the news of their expecting another child, or it could be in all manner of things. If you can flip it around, really take some enjoyment from that and live vicariously through it as well a little bit. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely, Tom. Much better to be like that than to live your life resentfully or bitterly or with, with too many regrets about how other people have done better than you. So the perfect thing is you see a friend walking down the street who's had something really good happen to them and you feel really pleased for them but when they trip over you might still have a little chuckle <laughs> <laughs> double whammy <laughs> double whammy i know if my mate spotted me tripping over they would properly rip me for it and I, i'd expect i tell else. you a better example it is when you're playing cricket and there's a mate of yours who scored his first ever hundred and you'd be absolutely thrilled to pieces and the next one he gets the ball right in the box and is doubled over in pain yeah you would still laugh wouldn't you let's you be would. honest you That's would, the world, uh, the world of cricket bants. <laughs> and we're going to go on to this segment now, but in true tight ass Tomo fashion, I'm usually delighted when I play cricket when a friend got a 50s, got a five or a hundred, because that meant they were buying the the beer jug in the bar afterwards. So I got a free <laughs> beer. Great Tomo, you, 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 that is. You, you have set yourself up perfectly for our uh, regular feature, the one that never goes away and never will go away, tight ass Tomo. When, uh, when, when Tom Morris here, our expert, our monarch of meanness, our prince of parsimony, all of those things that you could call him, will now come up with, once again, another one of his fantastic tips for how you can save money. Before he does, Chris, have you got one this week? Well, I was just wanting to remind people of a reasonably serious tip from, uh, actually goes back a long way, goes as far back as the Financial Wellbeing book which is that if you are tempted to buy something, and we all know that retail therapy is a myth, that if you buy something to cheer yourself up, it's actually not going to cheer yourself up, or at least only for a very short period of time. In fact, it can even make you feel fed up, as when you later you realise you bought something for the wrong reasons. So to combat that, there's this thing called, uh, we use called the two-week rule, which is that if you see something on the spur of the moment, say, do you know what, I really, I'm really fed up, I fancy that, don't buy it but wait two weeks. And actually this works really well with kids. If kids see in the toy shop, they say, I want that, I want that, I want that. Say, you can have that if you ask me again in two weeks time. And the chances are, of course, they'll completely forget about it. But if they do ask you again in two weeks time, it probably means they really want it. So the two week rule is not quite tight us, although it will save you money because you'll end up buying less things than you would otherwise have bought. Good advice there, Chris. Well, I haven't got anything this week, Tomo, so it's over to you, mate. Yeah, before I do, I'll just comment on Chris's tip. It's an excellent one. It's one I've actually talked to clients about before who who enjoy spend, spending money on things that might not necessarily really value. And we've gone through that exercise and it and it, it does work. So really, I, great tip, Chris. Um, for me, this one is, uh, is 
a conversation I had with a with a listener. Um, Chris, you'll know him, and it's uh, Andy Coles, who's uh, a fellow financial planner, um, and he listened to the podcast and used Kids Week, the uh, money saving tip that we did for uh, the theatres in I think it was August time. So we actually used that and saved some money. And he said he had a great great day in in London. So that was that was good to hear. But then he followed up with, "Is it?" I think this could really work, but you need to be quite organised for this, I think. So instead of buying birthday cards every year, buy a really big one that you, you can reuse. And in that way, <laughs> but in that way, you write a different message every year. So I think you'd have to be organised to make sure that once you've given it to that person, it probably need to be somebody in your household so you can then go take the card and store it away somewhere and, and bring it out. A year later but he said the idea is, is you don't have to buy lots of cards quite good for the environment but you can just keep adding lovely comments each year so then you get this sort of catalogue of birthday messages from the same individual which i think is uh is rather nice because to be quite frank cards just get put in the recycling most of the time i think that's brilliant do you know what that has now reminded me of this is and this is quite a coincidence true story it was my partner's birthday last week and a friend of hers came around yesterday with a card for her but she'd forgotten to write anything in the card <laughs> she, just, she said i've got a card for you so she opened it up and it was just completely blank so they decided they they both play in a in a band with which got a lot of members the amling band in bristol and uh, so they've now decided they're going to make that the band's birthday card and whenever it's anybody in the band's birthday they're just going to give that blank card to that person and then when it's somebody else's birthday they're just going to pass it on and see how long they can carry on doing that Brilliant. for yeah. Brilliant. excellent love it right okay that's enough for all of this tightness then chris remind us again who you've interviewed this week okay so we're going to have a listen to my chat with dr moira summers she specializes in the field of financial psychology but in particular she is fascinated by what stops people from taking preventative advice in other words, advice we are given to stop us from making bad decisions, which is hugely relevant for financial well-being. We like making decisions about things that bring us joy now, rather than the things that will prevent bad things from happening in the future. So Dr. Summers specialises in that subject. So let's have a listen to my chat with Dr. Moira Summers. Dr. Moira Summers, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I want to get into, I see all the books behind you, and I wish I could just explore your bookshelf. Well, yeah, I suspect you've probably got most of them <laughs> yourself already. Perhaps you could just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. I I have a very varied career, is all I can say. Always trying to do too much stuff at once. I am a professor at a medical school. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. I'm an executive coach and an author and... I do a lot of work with the financial advising community, clients that they serve. What brought you into that community? It was actually my work as, as a clinician and as a professor. One of my longstanding interests has been in what makes it hard for people to follow advice. In particular, what makes it hard for people to follow preventative advice? I got asked to bring some of that research and some of that knowledge into the financial advising community, because like medicine, you folks are trying to prevent bad outcomes uh, with and for your clients. And often you find it's an uphill battle. 
as do we within the field of healthcare. And so there seem to be some, some kind of neat synchronicities in ways that we might learn from each other in that regard. So before we get into that, because that's a, a great lead into, I'm sure you could give us a, a list of a few things. Neuropsychology, that seems in many ways, that and money seem to be two completely different disciplines. So just it perhaps you introduce why, how the brain works is so important to our financial decisions. Well, you know, at a, at a purely pragmatic level, I work with people during some of the worst times of their life. And if they haven't got their money stuff in order by the time they hit this rough patch with regards to their physical well-being, it is a really hard slog to be, you know, scrabbling to get things in place financially if you haven't done that already. And I just bore witness to that time and time again. I saw, frankly, the, the difference in outcomes between people who, A, had disposable income and B, were in good relationship to money and around money. And I saw the difference that that made. I saw it up close and personal. Made to their, their health outcomes. Right. You know, all the time within medical school, students are taught that poverty is a determinant of health or of ill health in particular. But when you actually get to see it day in and day out in the folks that you serve, you recognize that the inability to plan for proper insurance and to get that in place and the inability to pay for the medicines that would keep diseases at bay or allow you to experience some measure of comfort or allow you to get the therapies that would prevent the sort of decline from setting in with such alacrity as it, as it sometimes does, mm -hmm. that all of those make a huge difference in terms of outcome. Mm -hmm. And as well, you know, the, the degree to which people had been able in their own marriages and their own families to have discussions about the need to pull in the belts or the need to use some of our resources in ways that we'd never imagined having to do that before. That also had a big difference in outcome. We know that social support is a huge predictor of, of well-being. And when families begin to fracture or, or marriages begin to show the signs of strain because of the financial impact of disease, then outcomes, again, are, are kind of made less desirable. Yeah. So I'm afraid that I came into it from sort of that sort of like gobsmacked, holy cow, um, this is bad perspective as opposed to a, you know, a, a more positive kind of entree into it. But nevertheless, that's, that's how I ended up. So there's a really interesting area that uh, we could probably talk about for hours, actually, which is that of, I don't know if you know the phrase integrative medicine, lifestyle prescribing. Is this, this is all meat and drink to you, I would imagine. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that the proceeds of the Financial Wellbeing book go to an organisation called the Penny Bond Cancer Centre, in uh, which is just outside here in Bristol. My wife is an oncology nurse and she works there one day a week. So I've been, been fascinated to learn about lifestyle prescribing, integrative medicine, and it's all ways in which you help your own body to help to heal itself. Um, is, this, is this part of what, this, of what you do? Well, on good days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on good days, yes. I mean, I, I just finished up chairing a conference on family business succession, Chris. And the, the session that I contributed to that conference was about 
trying to get family business owners to put provisions in place for incapacity. Mm. Nobody wants it to happen, but just in case, here's what you need to do. And there are reasons why the majority of people in Canada, I'm assuming it's the same in the UK, they don't have an advanced healthcare directive in place. Um, half our population doesn't even have a will in place. I mean, it's, it's really hard to think about stuff in a proactive manner. We tend to get sort of our walking shoes on when we get a bad test result. Um, when, when life kind of rattles our cage to get our attention, that's when we're most likely to be receptive to that kind of integrative advice. So let's get into that. And what, what is stopping us from, um, you, you use preventative advice, particularly is a very important word in that. What is it that stops us from making those decisions? And how can we overcome that? And how can we help clients to overcome that if we're an advisor? I think the biggest thing is actually not not even necessarily a psychological thing, Chris. I think it's just that there's competing demands on us, competing demands for time and energy and money. So that's a biggie. There's also, you know, as you start to think more about what it is to be a human being, there's the fact that we would much rather spend our time, energy and money on things that are, feel more life giving, that are more fun, that are less distressing than the things we're, we're often asked to prevent against. I think there's sometimes a lack of routine and structure, either within our own lives, but also within public policy. Um, th- there just aren't the guidelines to help. So, for example, make sure that all citizens have access to high-quality food or decent-quality food, even. So there's just all kinds of of levels at which can make it difficult to do the right thing for optimizing well-being and of course money plays a huge role in that mm-hmm. so what is there some some neuro i say neuroscience is that different to neuropsychology i'm using new words no, it's just, we're one branch of the neurosciences okay so so what's the neuroscience behind us not acting on advice that we're being given then Um, Some of those things that I just mentioned, which is that we are programmed to be sort of here and now focused disproportionately to being uh, future focused. What we might call a present bias. We also, in terms of bias, there are all kinds of biases that keep us in place. Cognitive biases exist because there's too much information and there's too little meaning and we need to figure out what it is we should remember and what it is that we need to act on. And so we look for shortcuts. And one of the quickest shortcuts that the brain learns in infancy is a behavior creates a a positive, a pleasurable response. And so we redo that over and over again, that kind of stimulus reward response, stimulus reward response network loop. And so that's, that's bred into our neural networks. And what is it that allows us to, Clearly, we are able to escape immediate gratification and create great things and put plans in place and do hard things. That's also part of of our anatomy. But what's going to win out in any given day? Well, that is going to depend on a host of factors. Insight helps. Motivation helps. Support helps. But... uh, slowing down, recognizing when it is that we are either 
willfully, <laughs> deliberately ignoring the things that we should be thinking about or when we've just been neglecting stuff and need to get better supports in place for us, that, that's the key. Slowing down, telling the truth and figuring out how do we make better decisions and, and create better outcomes for ourselves. So two of the things you said there would perhaps give a bit of a clue of how we could do that. You said too much information and too little meaning. So presumably then if we, or I imagine there'd be a lot of advisors listening to this, whether they're financial advisors or they're people who just help other people, you know, friends and what have you. If we can help somebody to get the relevance of that information, we've got so much information. We need to sort that out into what the important ones are. And what are. Would that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, when I was researching my book, uh, was look I, I did a deep dive into consumer research actually and what is it that consumers look for in the experts that they consult and top of the list was cutting through complexity right I don't when I go to a I go to a doctor because I didn't want to go to medical school I go to a lawyer because I didn't want to go to legal school but even doctors and lawyers have their own doctors and lawyers because there's, when it, when it comes down to figuring out which of this information is wheat versus chaff for me at this point in my life, uh, when I might be actually kind of diminished or worn out or worried or concerned, I need, I need somebody with expertise to help me with that. And it really helps when that person with expertise isn't just sort of educationally equipped to help me, but also has the interpersonal skills uh, to get to know me and to help me make trade-offs that make sense in my life, even if they wouldn't necessarily make sense for the next person in the, in the waiting room. Or even the advisor themselves. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So the role of the, of the expert then is to help you to sift through the information and just focus on the information that's important to you well that would then lead to a follow-up question to me which is when it comes to finance and money what is the important information <laughs> that's going to change over time right that's going to change over time there's some research on financial literacy for example that says we do best at taking in information and and acting on it when it comes just in time when it comes right when we're sort of receptive for that learning. You know, the best time to learn about mortgages is, well, the easiest time to learn about mortgages, it turns out, is right when you need a mortgage. Yeah, Trying to teach a kid who's 15 years old in, a, in some sort of high school math class about how mortgages work, they'll remember that till the exam and then chances are that'll, that'll fade away. That, that plays into your comment about too little meaning then as well, doesn't it? Because... When, when there's a house over there that I want to buy, I really want to know how mortgages work because that has real meaning to that information, doesn't it? That's a really insightful point because I'm reading a book by a, a Dutch history professor, I think is Rutger Bregman. He's written a couple of books. One is Utopia, How to Make It Happen, I think, and the other one is Humankind, which is one of the best books I've ever, ever read. It was so cheered me up. Humankind, I absolutely recommend it. Its central premise is that we're not actually all selfish and horrible at all. We're actually all quite nice people. A message that I really needed to hear right now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
I'm just starting to read the Utopia book, and one of the one of the bits of research he quotes there is research that shows that financial education in schools doesn't actually make any difference. And you've just given us the reason why, haven't you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think the other reason why so much financial advice doesn't go anywhere is because it it fails to take into account our humanity. It fails to take into account that what it is to be a real human being with just like even started that first thing I talked about, the competing demands on us, let alone some of the other things like needing to learn how to tolerate difficult emotions like envy. Now, you think when the latest version of the uh, of the latest and greatest phone comes out, that people aren't gripped by this desire to have what their buddy just got or the desire to have what the ad says I can have. You know, there's there's a billion dollar advertising industry out there that exists solely for the purpose of parting us with our money. And they have very sophisticated means of doing that. And if financial education doesn't equip people for seeing through that and tolerating some of the stuff that it evokes in us, then we're just, you know, we're like the fish on the hook and, and we're, we've been caught. And so I think the, the sort of financial literacy 2.0 has to look into integrating the technical advice or the, or the, or the educational part with the fact that all decisions have been put through the personal filter about what matters to me. And, and they've also been put through the, the nudges and the defaults that act outside our consciousness. And so information alone will, won't help with either of those two pieces. We need to do better. We talk a lot. Um, we, have, we have five pillars of financial well-being that we use for the initiative of financial well-being and in the book. And one of them is called a clear path to identifiable objectives. Mm-hmm. And then when we drill down on identifiable objectives, we're really talking about uh, intrinsic motivations, meaning and purpose. And so I guess what you're saying, forgive me, I don't wish to put words in your mouth or to summarize what you're saying, but, but repeating it back. It sounds like if we can identify that intrinsic motivations, the things that give us well-being and, and meaning and purpose in life, then we just anchor every decision back to that. Is this helping me to achieve that intrinsic motivation? Does that work? You know, have you ever had a conversation with, with somebody that you've just met about what matters to you? Like matters to me in any given moment Chris might be you know I might be like Ebenezer Scrooge trying to figure out is this ghost really a ghost trying to give me a message or I think the line is or is this a bit of undigested beef (laughs) (laughs) and the fact is that what strikes us as meaningful and and purposeful is going to change And our job is to figure out where are we on that trajectory. If you hit me on a day when my marriage is swimming along and there's nothing but closeness versus a period where, you know, we're looking at each other going, I know I chose you voluntarily, but I can't quite remember why. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, that's, it's going to be really, really different. And so part of it is figuring out, can you meet people where they are as a financial advisor? Can you meet people where they are? And do you have the skills to help people figure that out? And as a consumer of advice, um, do I have the sense that this person in front of me is somebody that I would trust with that heartfelt information? What I always talk about when, I, when I'm working with clients is, can you imagine yourself on one of the worst days of your life or the worst periods of your life when you have become bereaved, when you have become disabled? Is this the person that you want to have sitting with you during your, those moments? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that this person would have your heart? Because really, that is when financial advisors are in their soul. Yeah. We, we reach out to them during times of great joy and also of times of great transition, great significance, often tragedy. And so we have to make sure that this is a person who really knows how to help us figure out right now what matters and, and has that meaning and that purpose, have they changed? Or are they still the same? I've been um, an advocate for quite a few years now, since I, I actually trained as a business coach about, about uh, nearly 10 years ago now, and that financial advisors need to have really advanced coaching, listening and questioning skills. And I don't know what it's like in Canada or the US, but in, in the UK, that's not something that is part of the standard curriculum. Um, that's not something that you're trained to do you're trained to give answers to technical problems. That's the role of an advisor. So I think anybody listening to this who's thinking about getting an advisor, one of the questions you should ask them is, have you had any training in coaching skills and questioning and listening skills? Mm-hmm. Or you might call it interpersonal skills would be a broader term maybe. Or at least they have to have their own radar attuned to the, you know. Oh, well, everybody thinks they have that, don't they? That... Um, sorry, I meant, I meant the client has to have sorry. Yeah. radar attuned yeah. to you know, you can just look at it like who who occupies most of the airtime? The advisor is 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 she spending the entire time telling you about how great she is, or what her uh, thing that makes me roll my eyes? What her process is, or is she really trying to understand where you come from and and what it is you're hoping for? Yeah, this is the, a, a- it is possible to become a financial advisor. I think on every single continent on the planet without ever having taken a course in communication. So when you look at the standards that they set out for advisors, there's really good stuff in there. The latest one for the American CFP board actually requires, uh, as do the ones for Canada and the the UK, they require, for example, that, that you have expertise in implementation, that you know how to help the client implement and that you have things demarcated about whose job it is. You never have to have a course in that either, uh, but you're responsible for it. Yeah, yeah. So I think the training is, is uh, there's going to be a sort of a short, sharp tug on the choke collar at the training institutes to make sure that they're covering these important domains. Yeah, I hope so. So I, I want to I just finish with, with a conundrum, okay? And because there's a couple of bits of research which I've read which seem to me to conflict about happiness. So let me try and explain. 
On the one hand, we are told that mindfulness is the way to be happy. Slow down, as you've talked about, make system beast decisions and, and, and think about things and just enjoy what's around you and, and don't constantly seek change because when you're seeking change, you're in a position of unhappiness. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we are also told that having meaning and purpose in life and having ambition is a good thing and achieving things is a good thing and that will give you a happiness. And it seems to me that those two things are in contradiction with each other. And I can't, I can't quite get my head around this little riddle that I've discovered for myself. What do you think of all that? Mm-hmm. We find the same things in therapy around, around so many issues, that there's this tension between two seemingly opposing truths. How can truths be opposing? Right? I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. There's a whole area of philosophy around that for me, you know, it's not the the contradiction so much as the complementarity of those things that, for example, we know folks who achieve and achieve and achieve and never stop to smell the roses. So the mindfulness is about paying attention to what your actual experience of something is. Because it could be that you were sold a bill of goods that is, frankly, crap for you. It, that thing that you were chasing was was never really what it was going to be for you. And unless you slow down and pay attention to what your actual experience of it is, it may be difficult for you to see through the lie. Similarly, paying attention to what you have often involves cultivating gratitude, experiencing gratitude at a deep level, recognizing how quickly you can reset yourself, like one focused inhalation and exhalation. And you recognize that no matter how upset you are or how messed up things are at this moment, that you can ground yourself over and over and over again in how okay and tolerable it is to be in your skin at this moment. So it's, as you say, the two can actually complement each other because you can have long-term meaning and purpose and strive and ambition whilst being mindful on the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I like that. I'm going, to, I'm going to work that one around a bit. I'll reflect on that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm just so pleased that you invited me to speak to you in support of your own initiative. Thank you for the work that you're doing, both for the Cancer Institute, but more broadly to help people get into good relationships to money. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, really interesting stuff that, Chris. Uh, good interview, I think. And she, she had a lot of pertinent things to say. And there were a few things that that struck home to me uh, just because of my situation at the moment. Both my uh, parents-in-law are both quite old and quite frail now and are in a state where they're not really able to make too many decisions for themselves, particularly about, about money, well, about anything, really. And so I was very stricken by her advice to say, get your money sorted before you become seriously ill you know start to make those plans now because when that time comes along if you haven't got everything sorted out and i'm sure you two as financial planners will have come across this many times you're then in a situation where you're going well you're not in a, you're not in a fit state to do it and that can cause all sorts of problems i remember my dad who passed away quite some years ago now got me and my brothers together sometime before he died and said boys i don't want you to worry about anything 
everything is out of control. You're going to get that. I've got three brothers. He said, you, 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 you're, my estate will be split between you equally. So that's all fine. All the paperwork sorted. Don't worry about it. We thought, oh, that's good. Our dad could always be relied on to do that. When he died, we went to meet his solicitor. His affairs were actually in a terrible state. <laughs> he, hadn't, he hadn't done half of the things that he said he was going to do. And it did take a bit of tidying up. I mean, not as bad as some people can be. But yeah, I just, I was just taken, uh, I, I just thought that was very, very good advice. So I, that's a phrase that she used fairly early on in the chat, which I did bring out at the time, but I just bring out again, which is when we're trying to make any decisions, not just financial ones, but any decisions, we tend to have too much information and too little meaning. I thought that was a fantastic, you think of voting or referendums or whether it's personal decisions about life, too much information, too little meaning. So if we can slow down, make more deliberate decisions and be truthful with ourselves, you're far more likely to make better decisions. I thought that was really insightful. Yeah, she talked, didn't she, about cutting through complexity and just focusing on what's important. Our life can be so often full of full of stuff that gets in the way. We all have busy lives. We're all at different stages of our lives, the three of us, actually. But that doesn't mean that we haven't got lots of things that are always competing for our attention. And that's why I think, uh, particularly around money, it's got to be really important to make those decisions as early as you can, particularly when you're in a, a reasonably together enough state to make them. Um, I picked up a couple of points for this. Firstly, it really flew in the face of this idea about chucking a load of financial education at youngsters. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But you, I, which really got me thinking. I, I have conversations with some clients, new clients. You, you take on, you discuss, you help educate about actually things that are relevant to them. And the comment goes, oh, I wish I learned this at school. Well, actually, if they learned it at school, how much would have been retained? Mm. You know, you're talking to a 15, 16 year old about mortgages. I mean, crikey, what, what on earth is going to be retained at that age? So it got me thinking, actually, that are we on a financial education quest too broad? Do we need to be really specific? Anyway, maybe a conversation for another day. That That's really a very good me. point, though. I mean, I did an A-level in history, and actually there's very little I could now tell you about Robert Peel and the reform of the Corn Laws, but I think I knew quite a lot of it at the time. And and, and, I, and I think that's very true. It's it's about making sure that you, you know the right things and you do the right thing at the right time for you. Yeah, so perhaps education throughout people's lives or giving them good signposts and places to find that education for when it's relevant for them, they're going to be able to pick it up really easily. But two that really struck out for me, and I'm going to go to, to two of the five pillars that we work with in financial well-being. The first one is the ability to cope with a financial shock. And that's where I'm talking about insurance. The ability to be able to, if you've got an illness, be able to have an income coming in, being, being okay. It might well be that you're you've built up enough assets yourself because you're a little bit older in life and you're going to be okay should the worst happen because you talked about how that can be really detrimental interestingly i think a lot around of it was around medical insurance and i think we're quite fortunate in this country that we we haven't got that burden we've got got obviously a, a public health service well what's left of it well <laughs> again maybe that's a oh, he's got a bit political dave's got a bit political <laughs> Oh, let's go. Oh, I mean, should we get into the point about no. how us workers are going to be paying uh, national oh. insurance increases oh. in the retirement? Anyway, um, Actually, we, we are the three. You are we are millennial, Gen X, me, and Boomer David. We have got the three. Yeah, let's okay. Move on quickly, Thomas. You can Move be on. in the middle. I'll have my pitchfork against uh, David. No, no. The other one is 
clarity and security for those we leave behind. And that really fits into just getting your affairs in order when you're fit and able to, so that when things come along and knock us off, you've got the finances to be able to deal with it, with the coping with a financial shock. But then also if the worst happens to us, our loved ones who are going to be grieving and going to be struggling are able to pick things up really easily. And if we can actually actively do that and think a bit more in the future, there can be some long-term well-being, but well-being in the now and knowing that we've got those things sorted. I cannot think of a better note on which to end today's podcast. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for listening at home. Uh, we'll be back again fairly soon, I think, with another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.